G'day and welcome to Dog Talk. I'm Dan Camilleri. And I'm Laura McKillop. We'd like to start by thanking Enduro for their ongoing support in bringing you our live weekly Q&A. Tonight we're fortunate enough to be speaking with Wayne Gelvin from Yam and Kelby's. Wayne will be picking who he thinks has asked the best question of the night and they will be in a bag of Enduro high-energy food for working dogs with real kangaroo meat. Hey, Wayne, how are you going? Good, thanks. And yourself? Yeah, good. Thank you. Good, thank you. How was your day? Yeah, good, good. Thanks. Had a fairly easy day today, so I'm pretty happy about that. I'm not falling asleep in the chair. What's an easy day look like for you, mate? Oh, we went out and did a bit of landmarking and, and we only had a half a day's work. And then uh, I got home, had lunch, and then I worked a few dogs and got fed up and everything's tidied up pretty early. Inside shower, had a feed, and now I'm sitting here talking to you. Oh, beautiful. Fantastic. <laughs> Yeah, we'll jump straight into it. You want to tell us a little bit about yourself, where you grew up? Well, um, I was born and bred at Manham, which is a town on the on the river, River Murray, just upstream from Murray Bridge. And I uh, lived at Young Husband for a while, which is just a little settlement about 15 k's upstream from Manham. And uh, my mother inherited 200 acres from her father and, and dad built a house on that. And we, we lived there, mum milk, milking cows and and uh, dad ran a few pigs and also worked at the local hardware store um, and my uncle had a farm next door so we spent a lot of time on my father on my, my uncle's farm where he had um he grew cereal crops and ran sheep and uh, had orange orchard and apricot orchard so i was sort of without being actually a farmer or the son of a farmer i was born into a farming environment and uh, lived there till i was about 13 and then we, my father bought the, or my parents bought the um, Colborough store, which is the general store just up the road here. Yeah. We lived yeah. there for a couple of years and, and I left school and, and my first job was um, was a shop assistant in the, in the Colborough store. You know, <laughs> we were there for a couple of years and, and we decided we'd rather be farmers and storekeepers. So a farm came on the market down here and we, uh, dad and mum bought that. And um, while we had that, I went jack rooing in Western Australia. Um, Gibson, a little place just north of Esperance. I spent 12 months there. I took a dog over with me and I worked for a bloke there that was had um, pretty good Kelpies and he was a good bloke with a with a dog. So I learned a fair bit there from him and I broke in a couple of horses there um, and then back home again. And then I took up shearing and uh, dad had stopped the farm with cattle. And then five minutes later in the mid seventies, cattle prices crashed so he couldn't keep it. So he moved to up to Brinkley and started the piggery up there. And I stayed here at Tindanara and um, went shearing. And um, uh, and then I was offered a job breaking in horses uh, in the Adelaide Hills. So I took that job and it was 12 months there. Then offered another job back down here at Tinty, working on a property, um, a fellow called John Parker, had Patchawarra Station here. He ran um, commercial shorthorns and also a quarter horse stud. And I worked for him breaking in horses and I also broke in outside horses while I was there and doing um, cattle work there off horseback. And then uh, we had the opportunity to buy what we've got now, which is um, just a house in 50 acres, just a couple of k's out of Tinty. And and um, I, I went, um, I continued with the horse broking here and went back shearing as well. So I, I um, broke in horses for seven months of the year and shore for five. And, um, and that's when I started mucking around with dogs because I always knew I wanted to have some sheep dogs and, and um, I started playing around just as a hobby with them and, and um, 
I've rode in horses for quite a while here and shore for quite a while and and um, then got into landmarking and that sort of thing and and um, gradually backed off on all the hard work. I used to shoe horses a bit as well. So um, 10 years ago, I gave up shearing and prior to that, I'd given up horse breaking already. And now I'm, um, I spend about four, four or five months of the year uh, marking lambs and doing contract stock work. And then the rest of the time I'm breeding and training sheepdogs. And, and that's about, that's yeah. about uh, my life in abbreviated form. <laughs> <laughs> and we, we run a few dog training schools here as well. And we get um, uh, farmers will ring up and order dogs, you know, sort of two years in advance. They realise our rovers getting a bit old. So they'll ring me up and say, look, I'm going to need a dog in a couple of years. So that gives me time to breed one and break it in for them. And uh, yep. that's about our life now. Sounds pretty good. Ever, ever thought of doing anything away from the animals, mate? I haven't. I I, um, I worked a Hannaford seed grader for three months. Worst three months of my life. <laughs> and it taught me, it taught me you've got to know who you are and what you are and don't try yeah. to be something different. Yeah. So, so no, I've, I've, um, I've done nothing, nothing away from animals apart from that little job. And, and obviously they're pretty extensive um, uh, history there with horses. And you said you wanted to get in the sheepdogs. Do you reckon the horses helped you when you did decide to make the jump? Well, the horses um, had me uh, home. Like I, I'd be shearing because I was away from home. But, but I, I, I stayed home every night. Like I didn't shear, didn't go up north shearing or anything. We just, there was enough shearing around the Tindanara district that I could just shear here locally. And and um, but I was still away. Like shearing days a fairly long day. You'd be you'd be leaving home at six thirty or seven o'clock in the morning. You wouldn't get back till six o'clock at night. And the time you do your grinding and and then I'd be feeding the dogs. So it was a long day. But once I was home here working uh, with the dogs, training dogs, um, well that was easier. But I guess when I was horse breaking here, like I was home, so I could have the dogs here and and I would. Um, I'd get my horsework done, then I could exercise my dogs afterwards and work them on weekends and that sort of thing. So, yeah, having the horses meant that I was home and and I was my own boss as well, so I could do pretty much what I wanted with the, with the dogs. Yeah. Do you see many similarities between the training of dogs and horses? Uh, yes, I do. Um, to a degree, I think that um, horses and dogs are a little different in as much as horses... Um, when you work a horse or train a horse, what he enjoys is having a spell from work. So if you put a bit of pressure on a horse and have him working, when he does the right thing, you just take all the pressure off and let him relax. That's about as as good a um, reward as you can give a horse, you know. Whereas a dog, um, you know, you put pressure on him to do something and then when he does it, like a pat and praise, he, he really responds to a pat and praise, where a horse... You know, I'd rub my horses forehead and, and that sort of thing, and they do enjoy that, but they don't respond to the praise like a dog does, I don't think. Yeah. yeah. But, but to teach a dog to sit or or to lead or to move around me, you know, left and right, it's, that's pretty similar to doing the same thing with a horse. Yeah. So when, uh, when you started out with your dogs, mate, was there someone that inspired you? Well, I, I think... The, I was born with the inspiration because when we lived at Young Husband, um, it was it was pretty basic, and and um, we had a dog to help get the milk and cows in, 
and my uncle had always had a kangaroo dog and a sheep dog, but the dogs were just there and we didn't know what we're doing with them. And yet my cousin and myself were sitting, I was about 10 or 12 years old, we're sitting in an old truck making out to drive this old truck and we were talking about what we we're going to do when we grew up. Now, I can't remember what my cousin told me, but I can remember telling him that when I grow up, I'm going to breed and train sheep dogs and break in horses. And, <laughs> and I've never ridden a horse. I've never had a horse in that time, but I used to watch all the Western shows on TV and all that sort of caper. So, uh, and, I, and I found out later um, that my mother was good with animals and my uncle, as in my, brother, my mother's brother, uh, he had a horse team when he was young. You know, that's how he did his farm work. And years later, he bred a few just mongrel-bred ponies because there's a few dollars in them, and he got me to break a couple in for him. And I went up there to, to pick them up and bring them back home to break them in, and he, he said, oh, I've let you down. He said, I haven't got them holder broken yet. So we had to holder break those horses before we loaded them on the flight to bring them back. And, and he would have had no training or education, but he was just a natural horseman. You know, he just – it was just in him to do it easy as pie. So I just think it, it was – it was born into me. I was just born that way. But having said that, um, once I was into dogs a bit, I was a bit of a fan of, you know, Chris Stapleton and Jim Luce and uh, Steve Wayman. You know, those blokes had, had achieved a fair bit. You know, Chris had um, Capri Watch going at the time and Steve had, um, well, I went over to, I went over to Wee Jasper Station to break in the batch of horses and I called in to see Steve Wayman when he was at Carrawa, at Burrawa rather, and he had, um, Barambogie Mac and Barambogie Chad and Chobie Mindy, like he had all those good dogs that he had then. And all those blokes, you know, they inspired me, I guess, and I really looked up to them and, and I was pretty keen to to catch up to them one day. And I haven't got there yet, but hopefully I will one day if I live long enough. Plenty of time for that, mate. Make it happen. Yeah, I'm, I'm not dead yet, that's right. That's it. <laughs> and you mentioned um, there, obviously, you've done a bit of shearing, and now you're contracting. Have you noticed a change in the way people are handling stock and dogs? And, and do you believe it's for the better? Oh, I think so. Um, not everywhere and not everyone, but um, I think the um, the schools and the knowledge that are getting about now really have helped people, I think. And I think um, uh, farmers in general, like farmers are pretty busy now and, and they... Um, running a farm now is a bit more complicated and more scientific than it used to be. So they don't always have the time to break in their dogs. But um, I think they recognise the benefit of a well-bred dog, whereas, you know, people used to get a dog for a box of beer and that sort of thing. So they understand that a well-bred dog will do the job better and they're starting to appreciate the fact that, um, you know, if you work your stock properly, you know, you they're more contented, they maintain condition, they grow more wool and all that sort of stuff. So I, I think overall it has improved. Yeah. 100%. That actually probably works into a, um, a question here we got from um, from Morgan. Um, he asked, has Facebook videos helped for business? Like, Do you think that, they, that social media has helped um, some of these farmers as well, seeing videos and what's not around, like what's about and we can do with the dog? I think so. I, I think they would because um, <laughs> Morgan's actually my granddaughter and, oh, and, yeah. uh, and she, uh, she um, years ago, she was here and and she, um, we were mucking around filming a few dogs and just mucking around. We'd come and have lunch 
and then we're sitting in the lounge, probably watching the football or whatever, and she's mucking around on a laptop. She says, here, Graham, she's your Facebook page. I said, I don't want a Facebook page. She said, too bad you got one. Well, that has been the best thing. So I can I can be at a place and I can see my dog's doing something not too bad, so I'll film it and, and um, on my phone, and then that night I can put it up on Facebook. Well, you know, all the farmers that I work for and that are, and that are friends on Facebook and anybody that likes our page can see all that. And, you know, and there's just about every dog state in the country that's doing it. So that's got to be beneficial, surely, to goodness, you know, as opposed to somebody that's, you know, buys a pup or, you know, gives somebody a box of beer for a pup and then just muddles their way through. It's got to be better, I'm sure. Yeah. And how about the farmer? You know, the stitch up or a line, a leading question. I just seen that question. I thought it kind of leads into what you're saying there. <laughs> I thought I'd just ask us a good one, good one, Morgan. Yeah, your timing was pretty good. Has your passion for dogs and horses gone through to your kids and grandkids? Well, um, not as much. Um, I've got I've got a daughter of my own and, and three stepkids, and and. Um, Probably when I was involved in horses and when they were growing up, I was that busy, you know, and we were sort of struggling to make a living and get this place paid for and everything, that the kids probably couldn't enjoy it as much as they would have liked. But but um, all the kids have ridden a bit and not too bad, but they haven't um, they haven't gone on with it like I have, um, except that I've got – and also the kids have moved away and, you know, they're doing other things, although we still keep in touch, of course, but – um, and some of the grandkids have gone off in different directions, but I've got a, a granddaughter at Keith that not so she loves animals, all animals, and she's right into the animals in that respect. But also Morgan, um, Morgan is actually my stepdaughter's daughter, so no blood relation to me theoretically, but we're pretty close, and and she just loves the dogs and the, and the sheep dogs, and and I reckon. If if I die without leaving the dog stud to Morgan, I reckon she's going to dig me up and cut me in the middle of little bits. I reckon. <laughs> so she's had she, Morgan loves him. Morgan's right into the dogs. Yeah, beautiful. that's beautiful. That's fantastic, mate. And while we're on that, um, do you remember who and what breed your first dog was? The first dog was a border collie Kelpie cross. We'd had a. Um, when we were a young husband and we had the milking cows there, uh, Dad had bought a, a blue healer pup from uh, from a pet shop in Adelaide. We brought that home. I remember that coming home. And um, anyway, it got into my uncle's sheep and mauled a few sheep, so we had to put that down. And then we got this border collie Kelpie cross from a fella oh, 30-odd k's away or miles away probably back then. And we brought it home. and. It, and it wasn't suitable because we didn't know anything about working dogs. And this dog, we'd bring the milking cows in. This dog would just run around the front and be barking at their faces all the time. So we didn't know anything about heading instinct and all that caper. So we just said, oh, he just, he's a sheep dog. He's not a cattle dog. He's no bloody good. So we're going to take him back. And then by then, I'd got pretty attached to him. So, so mum and dad said, look, we'll keep old Brandy here and you can have him. He'll be your dog. So he was my pet. You know? so, so I had him. And, and when we moved down to Tindanara, he still came with us. And um, uh, we, when we moved out to the farm, we still had him. And he came to work with me a few times when I just, as I was still going to school or just leaving school, he came to work with me a few times. And um, he was a pretty rough old dog and nothing very special as a work dog, but he was my first pet. But the first real work dog I had was a, a border collie dog I got from family friends. And I took him 
when I went jackarooing in Western Australia, um, I took him with me as an eight-month-old pup, and he turned out a pretty good dog. So there's three yeah. there's three first dogs. <laughs> <laughs> and what style or type of dog do you like these days? And has that changed? Well, it's changed um, as I've learnt more. I mean, when I first started, once again, I didn't know what I was doing, and and I'd seen good dogs and I liked them, and um, you know, I was I was a bit seduced initially by good paddock dogs, and I had a line of um, paddock dogs that uh, were nice, correct type workers, but they were a bit soft and not as effective as, as they needed to be. And um, if I was trying to shift a big mob of woolly sheep on a hot day, they couldn't shift them. So, and they weren't as good as they should needed to be through the yard. So I discontinued that line and I bought a, a pup um, from a fellow in Victoria that was by Capri Watch out of a Capri Sledge bitch. And that was the foundation for the dogs I've got now. And um, they have changed a little bit as I've learned more, but what I've got now suits what I'm doing now. And they are basically paddock dogs that, that are strong enough to work in the yards and um, they're good heading dogs. I, I call them medium. Everything about them is pretty much medium. They're medium-eyed, medium cast, uh, medium strength, um, medium temperament. You know, they're, they're happy and friendly and bold, but they're biddable and trainable. Um, I don't like yeah. arrogant, headstrong dogs, and I don't like them to be timid and shy. So, you know, everything's about, about them is sort of medium dogs, and, and they're good covering dogs. I, I'm really keen on good covering dogs because I hate seeing sheep break back and smash into the back of the yards. It's interesting. Um, Dave Molly's got a saying about average. Oh, about the average. Like an average is kind of safe. I can't exactly remember how you're saying it. It's funny you say that. Like having a medium dog, like you know, like it's nothing like over the top, but there's nothing at the bottom either, right? It's always just something consistent. Well, that's right. And something so, you can rely on. Sorry? Something you can rely on. Well, that's right. They, they suit what I do. You see, here in Tinanara, most of the sheep are merino sheep. And the work that I'm doing is I've got a yard and draft using lambs. Some some places we go, we put we mark the lambs in portable yards. So my dogs have got to have enough paddock work in them that they can put a mob of using lambs into a set of portable yards that are set up on a fence line and then draft them. Uh, so they've got to do that. They've got to hold sheep up to a crutching trailer or a scanner. I do a bit of that, pen up in a shearing shed. Um, and when they're holding up, say, to a draft or, or to a sheep handler of some sort, they've got to hold their ground. They've got to cover and hold but not spill sheep. And if, if I've got a dog that's weak, well, the ewes will turn around and hunt him out the yard, so that's no good. So all of my dogs will nose bite. Um, but they won't body bite or hock bite. Um, uh, they'll all um, back quite well. So I'll, they'll back up the front, come back down the fence. While they come back down the fence, all the sheep will spear past them and line up the way you want them. Then they'll hold up steady, you know, calm and firm behind the sheep without, without really um, doing any damage. And so that suits what I do. Now, if I had dogs that were super strong, they'd be walking up too much on those sheep and then the sheep would have nowhere to go but to break back past the dog and then smash into the back of the pen. So, so um, 
and if they're too weak, well, of course, they're just not going to get the job done. So I don't need real hard, strong dogs. I'm not working cattle or billy goats and that sort of stuff. But my dogs will stand up to rams and, and crossbred ewes to a degree, but, but um, I just don't need those super strong dogs. And the super strong dogs would be probably be a nuisance to me. Yeah. Uh, question here from Rick Freeman. Do you find that dogs with good feel, very light footwork and lots of eye generally don't have enough strength when something stands them up? Well, um, that's sort of a, the pretty much accepted opinion. Um, my dogs here, I've been, I've been breeding for footwork and cover right from the time I started, you know, I, and I've, I've had these dogs for a few generations now and I'm pretty happy with the footwork and cover that my dogs have got and they've got a nice bit of fuel but if if something turns around and has a crack at them they're in them and hitting them on the nose straight away and I won't keep a dog that won't do that and and but they don't do it always straight away as pups um, and if I'm say I'm holding up to a draft and a ewe turns around and has a crack at my dog I'll jump in and grab that sheep and shake it around and encourage my dog this is if I've got a young dog encourage it to come in and nip it on the nose and as soon as it does i'll throw that you back in with a mob again and she learns that she's better off facing the way she's going and the dog learns that he's had a win so so he starts to come in and starts fighting voluntarily so yeah it's generally accepted that the real fancy footwork dogs aren't strong enough but i think with selective breeding and selection you know you can get them that they've got good cover and hold but still will walk in enough and I mean, my dogs aren't tested against real tough stock. So if I was working cattle, they might not be strong enough. But, you know, I think if, you know, with selection, you can get both. Yeah. 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 The how do you encourage that was actually a question from Damon there. So you've already answered that, which is perfect. So. Yeah, as you answered, Damon Hunt asked, how would you encourage a dog to walk up better? So you, you answered that when you said you jumped in the race or you jumped in, in the yard and grabbed that you and turned it around. Yeah. And, and I know, you know, there's some dogs that won't walk in. You know, you you, um, you just can't get them to walk in. But I think if they've got enough of that in them, um, they will. And do you want to tell us a little bit about your current team? You mentioned them a couple of times there. Yeah, I've got um, the oldest dog I've got here now. I've got a dog called Yandon Trevor. And... Um, uh, he's, well, he'll be 10 in November, and uh, he's by a dog called Tanami Clyde that Lee Micken owned, uh, and out of a bitch that I had here. And um, uh, he's, been a, he's been a good dog for me. He's, he's been, I bred that litter, and that was probably one of the best litters I bred at the time. And I kept the dog and, and two bitches from that litter. And so Trevor's, he's a good all-round dog, like pretty much, all of my dogs, I could describe them. They'd all I'd use the same description as they're medium-eyed dogs, medium cast, um, medium walk-up strength. Um, they'll back, they'll bark a bit. They'll not dig on bark, but but um, they'll bark a bit, um, and they'll hold their ground and they'll nose bite. And, and so Trevor's done that, and he's been a good dog for me. Um, you know, on the job, he backs really well. He loves backing. Come back and and. Um, uh, you know, he does his job pretty well. He's earned his keep well and truly. And then I've got, I've got his sister here. She's retired. And Trevor, I thought I'd get another 12 months out of Trevor, but um, he showed me the other day that I'm not going to. He's, he's just about done, I think. Uh, all right for small, easy jobs, but he's not going to do any hard work for me anymore. 
And then I've got a dog called uh, Kenny, who um, who is Trevor's nephew. He's out of Tracy by a dog called Baloka Bonanza. And um, he's going pretty nicely. He'd be four or five, I think. And he's got quite a big cast. Um, medium-eyed, um, you know, medium-strength, really good cover and hold. And um, he backs well enough and he'll nose bite. And, and um, he's... Um, He's doing a real good job for me now with, with you know, yarding and drafting, using lambs, and then keeping sheep up to, you know, sheep handlers and what have you. And then I've got a, a dog called uh, Mulga, who, who is probably three or four now, and he's been he's been a bit, well, say been a bit slow to get going. He's really just been left, you know. I, I've had other dogs to work, and and he's been a bit left, um, and I. I thought I didn't need him, so I've actually nominated him for the Lucendale auction on the 25th of September. And now the other yep. day when yeah. I went to Trevor and Trevor said to me, boss, I'm nearly done. I'm thinking, why on earth did I go ahead to Mulga? So, <laughs> so I'm hoping Mulga doesn't sell because I might need him. And, and then I've got, um, then I've got, and Mulga's going pretty well. He's got, he, um, when I first started trialling him, he didn't win his first trial, but I had a good day at, um, at Lucendale in in uh, November, I think, and he won the um, he won the, the novice, the improver, and was second in the open down there on the one day. So he had oh, a good day, and and um, uh, yeah, he's got some nice work in him, and and um, uh, and he's he's more of a paddock dog than um, well, yeah, he's a he's a paddock dog that's got a bit of a bit of push to him, and he backs and. And, I, and I'm just getting him to bark a little bit now. I had never tried to get him to bark, and I'd feed him at night. And after I'd finished feeding the dogs, he would um, he'd be barking and playing with his food container. So I thought, well, um, <laughs> if he'll bark and play with his food container, perhaps I can get him barking. So I started mucking around with him. It took me about two minutes, and away he went barking. So and I haven't worked on a lot still, but but he was, you know, he, he's got a bit of bark in him, and he's got some pretty good work in him. And now I've got a young dog uh, who is. He's just an apprentice, a dog called Target, and he's out of Tracy, um, so he's a half-brother to Kenny, and he's by a dog called uh, Fernley Walter, and um, uh, he's, as I say, he's only apprentice, but he's shaping up pretty well, and, and he's got, you know, same deal, medium-eyed, he hasn't developed much cast yet, but he but he will have a medium cast, I think, really loves backing, and good medium strength dog that will that will hit him on the nose and that sort of cable but but no body bite or hot bite so so that's the team they're mainly males and i've got bitches here that are that are um all, all sort of bred and line bred and and um uh, they don't get as much work I, I make sure i break in the bitches and i give them enough work to assess them and make sure they're worth breeding from but um they don't get the work that dogs work because they're in season in pup or rearing pup so they no, they're out of action a fair bit of the time. Yeah. So that's my team. Why don't you uh, get on that a bit of that a bit later? That sounds like a pretty handy team, mate. And who was or... Or is. <laughs> who were or are the most influential dogs um, to get you to where you are today and what made them special? Well, um, I had a dog. One of my earlier dogs was a dog called Glen Avon Spiro. And he was bred by Mark Wendelborn, and um, he was by Cyprian Blackie, that um, who was a brother to Cyprian Wagtail that Gordon McMaster had, 
and Neil McDonald had him. Yep. He's out of a Skoriokovic, um, Skoriokovic Stella, the second, I reckon the name was, and Mark called her Kelly. And I just fear I was a big wide cast and paddock dog that would work in the yards and he would back sheep under sufferance. He only back sheep because I told him he had to. But he was, he wasn't terribly strong, you know, and I yard trialed him and he wasn't, he was actually runner up state champion one year, but it was just, of course, suited him, I think, and we just, we just had a good day. But he, he, um, he wasn't a very good yard trial worker, but he was a very good dog home. Um, you know, yarding and drafting, using lambs. Um, I went to a, a fellow had us, um, a fellow had us uh, muster his using lambs because we're doing them in the portable portable yards. And he was on the quad bike with this rough old farm dog, and there were sheep and lambs going everywhere. And I pulled him up and up one day. I said, "Mate, just park your park your bike and grab hold of your dog, and I'll put him in the yards for you because these lambs are going to bleed like blazes. All this running around they're doing." So we put him in the yards with old Spiro and he was, you know, he was a really good paddock dog. And, and um, so he influenced me. Um, he didn't influence what I bred because he wasn't a terribly good sire. A lot of his pups were soft and, and too soft, you know. He himself was soft enough that I could get fine, on fine with him. But he showed me what to expect in a paddock dog and what could be achieved. And um, so although I didn't breed on with him, he I learned a lot from him. And... Um, yeah. And then I yeah. had a dog. Um, well, I, I bought this, this bitch called Colgen Flint from this fella that was, and I mated her to, I mated her to a dog called Capri, uh, Sunbeam Storm, who was by Capri Badge, so it was her cousin. Yeah. And that produced yeah. a bitch called Flo, the second that I had, and and I mated her to various dogs, and I bred a dog called Chance, and and um, he, um, he had. Not a lot of eye, just but just enough eye, and um, nice movement around his sheep, and he was a bit keen going. And anyway, I when I left stock shearing ten years ago, um, I took a job on a farm for about three years, and I had and Chance was my main dog then. I had him and another dog, but but Chance was my main dog, and he really showed me um, that you don't need heaps of eye to have a good paddock dog, and and um, he would do everything, like he'd back and he'd bark a bit, he'd nose bite a bit, um, he would hop bite a little bit, but not a hell of a lot. Um, and he just he just showed me once again what to expect from a dog and and helped me, um, uh, like he was, uh, his daughter was Trevor's mother. Um, so he just taught me what to expect and, and was just a help in understanding about my selection criteria so that I, just learn a bit more about what to expect and what dogs to select. So that'd be the main, yeah. probably the main two dogs that, have, you know, that have influenced me, I think. And then, and now Trevor, you know, Trevor's litter has influenced me a lot. And, and um, now Kenny also is, you know, there, I'm learning all the time from the dogs that I work. You know, you learn from other people as well, but I learn a lot from the dogs that I work as well, I think. Actually, you you mentioned people there. Do you want to go on? Yeah, there's a question here from uh, John Pillow. Who has been the most influential handler for you? I reckon, um, oh, well, Greg Prince would have been. I, I um, probably 25 or 30 years, be 25 years ago, I guess. I'm not real sure. Neil McDonald hosted a, a Greg Prince school at his place down here at Keith, and Keith's only 
you know, it's only 40 k's away from here. So, you know, I'd get to Neil's place in less than an hour's drive. And he had Greg Prince here. And I was getting my dogs going pretty well still. I was pretty happy with how my dogs were going. But I went down to this Greg Prince school and it was a Saturday, Sunday school. By Saturday lunchtime, I was converted. Like, what he was doing, because I'd had a fair bit to do with horses, you know, and what he was doing with his poly pipe and a round yard with these dogs, I, I just related to it straight away. And I'm, and I'm thinking, how easy and straightforward and simple is this? It's easy on the man, easy on the dog, easy on the sheep. Um, I was just converted. I, like, Saturday night, well, everything I'd done was out the window and I was just doing... Probably not exactly the same as Greg because no two people are the like, but my interpretation of what Greg was doing and I was, as I say, I was just converted. So he'd be the most influential person for me, I think. Beautiful. Well, awesome. Um, mate, we mentioned cast before, just before John's um, question then. Sorry, you mentioned it while you were talking. How important is um, cast to you? Cast you know, very important. a dog or do you like to it? Yeah, cast, cast, I think, is very important because that's that's when the dog gets around his sheep and, and starts work and introduces himself to the sheep to a degree. So it, it is very important. And I've had dogs, like that Spiro that I had, he was a huge casting dog. I cast him a kilometre and he would have go further if need be. But um, there's times if I had sheep 50 metres down the paddock, he'd want to run 300 metres around them. So I'd be always calling him in. So... So that was more cast than what I needed in this in this country. Um, Tracy was a good cast, but the cast is important because that's how the dog gets around his sheep and puts them together. So it's the introduction, the initial introduction to the sheep. And, and I believe that every time we work our dog, we're trying our dog. And every time we work our stock, we're trying our stock. So it's very important that we treat our stock properly. And, and um, I think, you know, stock has got to be disciplined so that they know what's right and what's wrong, but they have to be rewarded for doing the right things. So a good cast ensures that the stock aren't knocked about and treated unfairly. And so you introduce things to the stock and you start them off in a good frame of mind. Beautiful. Yeah, no, absolutely. Like Man, you've had a few um, clients of yours or repeat customers of yours get on tonight and wanted to say hi. They're very happy with their dogs. So uh, a few clients out there. I uh, hope you're taking a bit away. Sorry. Um, what was that, sorry? Um, I didn't hear your last little comment. Oh, I just said to the, um, your clients out there that are listening tonight, hope they're taking a bit more away from, from our chat with you tonight. Oh, yes, hope so, yes. <laughs> um, so... Can you explain what feel is to you? You've mentioned strength, but what's feel? To me, uh, fuel is fuel for the flight zone. So um, I think if the dogs are held up, if sheep are held up against uh, against the barrel, say a gateway or a draft or whatever, and the dog approaches those sheep, I think fuel is um, the ability of the dog to to approach his sheep and hold pressure on his sheep so that so that they want to walk off him and go the direction they're told to go, but he pulls up short of, of splitting them and, and causing them to break. So he can, he can come in on his sheep steadily but firmly, cause them to respect him and want to move off him, but not feel that they have to break away and break over the top of him or, or, or escape from him too much. So 
that's pretty much fuel to me, I think. Yes, yeah, sweet. Beautiful. Love it. Love it. That's, that's a great explanation of it. Right. And right, you mentioned an auction there a bit earlier. Right. With the increase of auctions over the years, do you think it's a good thing um, for the value of working dogs, uh, for the industry? And how do you see it moving forward? I think it's a good thing. Um, it, it awakens people to just what a working dog really is worth. Um, and and um, so I think that's good. I think moving forward, I can see there's more and more auctions about. Um, and I think the good dogs will still continue um, to bring good money. But I think the more auctions there are, the average dogs, the price may come down to suit the market. You know, as there's more dogs available um, and more people that don't have as much money can bid on them. I, I think that maybe the average dogs will come down a little bit, perhaps, but the good dogs will always yep. have their value. And do you think that do you see any negatives from from so many increase in so many auctions? Not really. Only the only negatives, pardon me, I would see is if um, too many inferior dogs are put up to auction, and then they don't display themselves terribly well for all the public to see. You know, we we want if things are put up on YouTube or whatever, we want. We want to see good demonstrations and not rough demonstrations. So, but as long as the yeah. as long as the quality dogs are there, I don't think there are really negatives at this stage that I can think of. Yeah. And um, you know you've got a pretty good breeding. Um, I can't think of the word system. System. Um, <laughs> how many pups would you guys, or litters, would you guys be breeding a year? Oh, probably between 20 and 30. We breed sort of three to four litters a year. Um, and, and, yeah, just about 20 or 30, between 20 and 30. just depends yep. on depends on demand and, and timing because, um, you know, the bitches sort of tell me when they're coming in season and sometimes it doesn't suit to make a bitch. But, but um, as long as it all works in somewhere between 20 and 30 pups a year. Yeah. And um, Darius Cosgraves asks, what is your most successful breeding combo um, that you've done with your dogs and why? Um, he's got one of my dogs. So he probably, he's probably hoping I'll say <laughs> his dog. <laughs> and his dog is, I'm pretty happy with it. Um, Kenny um, is siring pups now and and I'm none of his pups are out doing a lot of work. Darius is, it's, he'll be two year old in December. Um, so his is going into work and there's been and it's a sister to him that's in the district that's going pretty well also. Um, but Kenny Kenny is proving to be a pretty good sire for me and maybe the best sire I've had, I think, so far, just judging his pups now and it's, it's early days. Um, but I've got young pups here uh, by Kenny out of a dog called uh, Daku Cody, that Herb Cooper bred. And... Um, that's, that's produced some good ones. Um, and I've put Kenny over Fernley Ruth and um, Darius has got one of those. And um, I've got another litter of them here now and they're all looking pretty good. Um, and, uh, and I've also put Kenny over Olive and they're, they're only half going, but, but they're looking quite good as well. So, so I'm thinking, 
that any of those will be good. I think that Kenny is the main is the main um, ingredient to it all. And and the reason I like them is because they've got a nice balance of of all the things that I want in an all round dog. They've got really good cover and hold, um, enough walk up strength to suit what I'm doing, uh, and um, good temperaments, good trainable. They're happy and friendly and bold, um, outgoing pups, but they're still biddable and trainable. And Mike Mangold's um, got a question here. How do you rate Kenny against other dogs you've bred in the past? You've said he's um, obviously one of your better ones. Yeah, I, I at this stage, I would rate Kenny uh, as uh, probably the best dog I've had, I think, at this stage. Yeah. What makes him special? Well, um, it's hard to say. He... he um, He's reasonably biddable, he's keen, he's keen and he wants to head, like he, um, sheep won't get away. I, in fact, when he was doing his apprenticeship, I, I, um, I'd finished drafting sheep with him and, and I jumped him over the side of the bugle to walk around to my ute and put him on the back of the ute and I jumped him over ahead of me and I got over the fence and when I looked back, he was legging it out in the paddock to head these sheep off that were all the ewes that had been turned out in the paddock. And I couldn't call him back. I had to go and jump in the ute and drive out there and get him and bring him back. So he, his desire to, to head and the scope that he's got in his cast and, and desire to get around and, and put sheep together and not let them get away, that's, that's pretty admirable for me. Plus, you know, he's more biddable now. And he was never really headstrong. It's just that his keenness to work overpowered me that day. And it has a couple of times since then, but not so much now that he's older and settled down. And he'll back and he'll bark and get him in a shearing shed and he barks his head off, but get him out in the yards and he doesn't bark that much. He barks a bit, but not that much. So he's just, I think he's just a good example of an all-round dog. Yeah, beautiful. And I was just going to say, what are you looking for um, before joining dogs? Like similarities, differences? Well, they've, they've got to have... Um, a good cover and hold for me because um, once again I just hate having sheep hit the back fence so I want them to cover and hold and still have enough force um, you know to hold sheep up and so that sheep respect the dog um, so they've got to have that and and um, when so both parents have got to have that my um, I'm trying to as the further I go with my breeding I'm finding I'm not, I'm not making compensatory mating. I'm making sort of, I guess you'd call them complementary matings. But there's not much difference now between the dog and the bits that I look for. I, um, I'm sort of breeding like to like a fair bit. Um, and um, if I if I make an outcross, I try to make sure that I take a bitch away to a dog that um, is doing a lot of real work because I've only got 50 acres here and I train the dogs on 50 sheep and I'll get them broken in here on just on that little Mickey Mouse job, and I'll get them to about 16 months of age, and then I'll take them away to work with me. So they start, they do their apprenticeship, and then they, you know, they get real experience when I'm away at work. But because I'm working somebody else's stock, I can't just train pups on the job. I, I've got to take a broken in dog with me. Yeah. Um, so when I'm making outcross, I want to go to a dog that is um, doing a lot of real work and has, and has proven to have a reasonable amount of strength. 
So, you know, I, I don't want a real headhunting dog that's just over the top for strength, but I want him, he's got to be a good sound temperament and, and a bold dog with, with plenty of strength without being rough. And that's mm -hmm. about, you know, what I go, and footwork and cover, cover and hold is what I've got to have. Answer the number of Rick Freeman's questions there, mate. I love the way that you get in the depth when you answer. You get you answer about two or three questions that we've got here, so that's fantastic. But there's one question you haven't answered. I've been listening to a few names of your dogs. I've actually got another question for Morgan. It says, how do you name your pups and dogs? <laughs> we've just heard some of your names there, and I really love some of these Aussie names you got coming through. You, your Kenny, your Trevor. Um, well, Olga, Trevor, Trevor is, Trevor is Morgan's fault because... Um, I don't know if you remember the old RAA insurance ads. Oh, you probably don't know them, RAA. Oh, right, RAA. Is, that, is that South Australian or Australia-wide? Anyway, there's, they have RAA insurance had these ads where there was this bloody dickhead that was always doing stupid things, and then when he'd get himself <laughs> into trouble, he'd call Trevor and Trevor at the barley mouth. So Morgan, so we're going back 10 years now, and, and Morgan says, Morgan would have only been 15, 14 or 15. She says, Graham, she got to call one Trevor. So anyway, this fella's the poor bugger that got that name. <laughs> so we, we basically, each litter, we start with the next letter in the alphabet. So so Trevor was, that litter was started with a T. And, and um, uh, I haven't got much imagination. So... If I start with the next letter, we're not real fussy with some of the names, and some of the names get changed when people buy them. But, but that's that's how what we do. And the names, the names, just a name, and then it's not that special. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome, mate. And uh, we'll get back on the, some of this breeding stuff now. But what do you enjoy about breeding? Oh, I think I think um, to to look at a dog that you've bred and trained, and and it's and it's um it's got the characteristics in it that you want. You know, I've um I've just about given up buying eight week old pups, and I, and I, over the years I've bought quite a few pups. You know, from from good breeders, and and most of the pups I've bought have been fine as work dogs, but they haven't really been um, stud improvement improving dogs. I haven't thought, and I've resold most of them. Um, but so when you when you breed, you really selecting what you want in, in your dogs and and it, you sort of stamp your own personality and your own character in into your line of dogs so um that's what i like you know when i was horse breaking i had horses there that were that good i didn't want to send them home but i had some there that they were that bad i didn't want to feed the bloody things and, and with dogs can be the same you know there can be a fair bit of variation but once you work out what you want as a breeder and and you start understanding what they're doing, well, then you can sort of set that type that you like. And and that's what I like about it, is that you can stamp, you know, your character and your personality into your dogs and they just suit you, you know. Beautiful. And that's what it's about, right? Breeding dogs for yourself first. Well, I think so, yeah. Well, if you don't breed for yourself first, you don't have a testing ground. You know, so, you know, I could... I know friends of mine out here and clients out here at Colborough were going to use... Um, dogs on cattle and I thought oh well I better start breeding a few cattle dogs but then I thought well I don't have access to cattle work myself so what's the point I can't I can't really test them to make sure they're doing the job properly so I'll just leave that to somebody else that is working cattle and I just breed dogs and see what I want to do 
then I can test them, make sure they're good enough. Job's right. You know what, mate? I reckon that's a more amicable outlook at it rather than just flog a whole heap of litres through just to make a couple of bucks and not really? being able to be happy with the product you got coming through. I, I, that's admirable, mate. Hats off to you. I think it's nearly suicide to, to do that because you're not going to breed good dogs anyway if you can't test them. Yeah. So, so you know, it, it'll come out and bite you on the ass in the long run anyway, I think. I totally agree with you. Totally agree. Quite a leads into this question. Yeah. Um, Emma Good has asked, um, do you think we should be trying to preserve the foundation bloodlines of the Kelpie or breed for today with individuals that perform well? Um. I think I think it's great to preserve the bloodlines. I, I think it's really good, provided they've got a use. You know, I think the Kelpie has probably evolved over the years as as our needs have changed. So, um, you know, I look at what um, Scott Amon is doing there from a distance. I don't I don't know Scott at all, but I you know he's carried on with the Karawara bloodline, and it'd be a shame to lose that good big casting. You know, paddock type worker. I think it'd be sacrilege to lose all that. So it's great that that people are doing that. And so yes, I think it's great to to preserve the bloodlines and and the um, yeah, and the families of dogs because I think you know there's good and bad in every breed, but it's the families within the breed where the quality comes from. So yeah, I, I think it's a good idea. Absolutely. And you mentioned before you're talking about like breaking in bitches. Um, before you breed them, does a bitch have a particular criteria that she needs to meet in order for you to breed from her? And, and if so, what, what are you looking for in that? Well, um, yes, they do. All my dogs got to have a, a criteria, but my um, my selection criteria is pretty important to me um, because I've only got fifty acres and I and I can't just train my dogs on the job and all that sort of caper. Um, I, I'm pretty strict on my selection, so. I'll, um, I'll uh, when I select my pups, I, I don't show them sheep until they're probably, oh, well, I have shown sheep. I have put pups in at eight weeks old, nine weeks old. But really, I like them to be sort of 10 to 12 weeks of age before I show them sheep because they've got a bit of leg under them. And, and when I put them in, I put them in on just two sheep that have been worked by a dog enough to settle them down so that they're not mad panicky things crashing the fences. But I want the sheep to have still a fair bit of life in them. And when I put my pups in with them, I only put them in one at a time because when I put them in with them, if I put a whole the whole litter in, there could be timid pups there or you know shy pups that that um, their their shyness is disguised because they're running with all their litter mates and drawing drawing um, uh, confidence from all their litter mates. So I put them in one at a time because I want to see how each individual pup responds and reacts to these sheep on its own. So um, I'll carry it in and I'll, and I'll walk around behind these sheep and I'll put the pup down. Some pups will go to work straight away and some pups won't even look at the sheep. And that doesn't worry me because I don't think a pup has to be an early starter to be a good dog. But I need my pups working 100% keenly by the time they're 16 weeks of age to fit in with what I'm doing here. So I want my dogs to be reasonably early maturing or early starting, but 16 weeks is a cutoff point. If a, if, a, if a pup hasn't started work by 16 weeks, I won't keep it to breed from, even though it will turn out to be a good dog later on or could do. 
but I just I just need them to be started by that time. So I put them down with the sheep and move the sheep around, and and I look for the pup that will run and head that sheep smooth and clean and break out off its head just a little bit as it goes. I don't want them to break out real wide and lose touch with the sheep, but I want them to get to the head pretty quick and break out just enough that it's not crashing the fences. And I want to do that equally well both sides. And then if it blocks its sheep up and the sheep stop, then I want to see the pup walk in and steadily but firmly and create, and create a bit of movement. And then once those sheep move again, back to control that movement again. So that's what I want to see in the pups. And then, and then once I make the selection and keep, oh, we, we usually keep about 10 dogs a year to break in. We usually sell 10 broken in dogs a year. Um, then they have to be trainable and, I, and they have to maintain that keenness right throughout their whole life. If, they are, if they're keen today but then only half keen tomorrow, they won't stay. So they've got to, once they start work, they've got to maintain keenness right through and quality work right through and be relatively easy to train. So I want them biddable and trainable, not headstrong or arrogant, and I don't want them timid and shy. So that's what's got to happen. And then when they're broken in, they've got to be able to back sheep and hold firm and head and cast a bit and all that sort of caper. So they've got to be able to do all those things to a reasonable standard or else they won't stay. And then they've got to also be easy to breed. If they won't, take, if they won't stand for the dog easy mating time, they won't stay. If they don't mother their pups, they won't stay. So I think all those things are genetic and and um, uh, I'm pretty lazy, so I want them to be easy to manage and I want everything to be easy, basically. Yeah. Well, awesome. I love the bets you went to in that. Um, we've got a question here from Kane Gardner. Is there a line of dogs you haven't tried before but would like to use in the future? Well... There's probably lots of lines of dogs that I haven't tried, and and I um I don't get around much. Um, I used to love it when the Kelpie Council were uploading all those videos of the trials and things because I could see all oh, those how good was it? dogs, and and that was great. But um, there's a lot of dogs around that I wouldn't know about um, that are good. Um, I've used uh, one Carawarra or a couple of Carawarra dogs in the dogs, and that was beneficial. Um, so I, when I look for an outside dog, I don't really study their pedigrees much. If I see a dog, if I see a dog that I think might improve what I've got, um, like he needs to be reasonably well bred, but I don't really go in depth to study his pedigree because I'll try him. And if, if he produces a litter that are, are pretty even and pretty good and are started by 16 weeks of age, I'd probably keep one, um, or I might keep two or three, but, I'd, but if it turned out good, I'd keep that one and then I'd breed him back over his cousins and aunties and nieces and half-sisters half and that sort of thing. So I'm, I believe in line breeding and, and I do that, but the outcross that I make doesn't have to be related and I don't have to know a lot about it. If it's good and its brothers and sisters were good, well, that's probably all right for me and it's worth a try. Yeah. There's a lot of you know, there's a lot of lines out there that I don't know about. So, so anything that's good, I'd be prepared to try. And do you believe that a bitch or a sire has more influence over the litter, or does it not make much difference to you? Well, well I think um, each one puts in half the genes. So, 
but some probably most times the more line bred dog would be more prepotent. So um, I would expect, but um, I, I think, like, as I say, each one puts in half the genes and there's some dogs that are very prepotent and some that are not so prepotent. So I don't think it makes a difference whether it's the dog or the bitch. It's more, it's probably their, their genotype that, that will make them more prepotent and more influential. Yeah. Yeah, beautiful. And what's your opinion on AI um, using dogs that have been dead for a while compared to using the best sire you can find today for live cover? Oh, look, look, I don't think it matters. I think if, um, um, you know, some, some of those old dogs did a pretty good job and left some pretty good pups. And, and um, so I, I, I'm not for or against either, you know. Well, I'm, I'm for both, you know. If, if, if you've got a bitch that you think that old dog there that's dead now if you think if you think um his genes will improve what you've got and be beneficial and would match with what you've got yeah by all means use it but by the same token there would be um you know live dogs about that would do the job as well so i think it just depends on you know on your theories and and what you what you like and do you have, are you gonna say something yeah, yeah. No, uh, do you have a theory or anything about how you go about picking a pup for yourself and has that changed um, no, it hasn't changed. Um, I don't think. Well, only what's changed is is my knowledge about dogs. I think, and I know what I want more now. When I was younger, I used to, um, you know, I wasn't sure what I wanted, and I was experimenting and looking about and zigzagging around the place trying to find things. But I'm, you know, I'm pretty sure of what I want now. But um, no, my theory. Well, I know. I know that I can't select the right pup at eight weeks old. I've proved myself. I've proved myself. I can't do it, so I don't even try to do it. So I, as I say, I only breed three or four litters a year, and I'll keep all those pups till they start work, because um, uh, I need to keep. We usually got you know orders for broken in dogs, and I usually sell ten a year. And when I say broken in, they're not fully trained and experienced. They've had their schooling and ready to start their apprenticeship. And they're about 16 months of age. Um, so I want to I want to see the pups work. So I wean them at between six and eight weeks. And at eight weeks, I put them in I put them in um, smallish cages. I might put two or three in a cage that has a two square meter floor space. And and then each day, I'll let them out. I'll lift them out of this cage and put them in a in a ring of world mesh to let them run and play. And I get, I'm in there with them and they're trying to tear the leg out my strides and all that sort of caper. And, and I'm in there just to be with them, but I don't I don't handle them a lot. You know, I haven't got collars on them and leads on them and all that sort of caper. I, I, I lift them out of these cages because I don't have a front door. I lift them out so I know I'm going to catch every dog, if, every puppy. If I have them in a, in a bigger cage, I go in there to handle them and I catch three and I might, there might be eight in there. And then I'm scratching my head thinking, now, have I caught that one or was it that one or was it that one? And I'm not sure if I catch every pup, you see. So I put him in these cages. I know I'm catching and handling every pup. And then when I put them in this ring of world, they're excited to be there. So they're running around and playing and they're wrestling with each other. And and then they one will pick up a pine cone. The others all try and get it off him. And they start working him and blocking him up like they block up sheep. So I'm in there observing all these pups and... and um, so I'm making mental notes about which pups more dominant, which pups a bit 
a bit submissive and and which pups got the best movement when they're trying to get that pine cone off each other. So I'm I'm sort of learning and observing about these pups all the time, and and um, then then when they are um, well then I catch them, put them all back of course, and and then when they're between ten and twelve weeks, then I take them over, put them all in the trailer, and take them over to the sheep yards and put them in one at a time um, with the sheep to see how they work and assess how they. Um, how I handle the situation because what I'm looking for is that dog that's happy and friendly and bold, still trainable and biddable, um, and will just take everything in its stride. So if I take him in, put him in sheep, and he looks worried about being there and wants to run out back to his mates in the trailer, well, he gets a bit of a cross by his name. So I just make mental notes of how they respond to all this sort of stuff. And and by the time they're 16 weeks of age, I've got a bit of a, an idea of what's what. And I might hold three back from each litter, um, and then away I go. So um, I, I put a fair bit of effort into selecting my dogs because I know I've been disappointed so many times by just picking an eight-week-old pup and say, "Yeah, this fellow will do." When I find out later on, no, he won't do at all. So I put a lot of effort into selecting them. Yeah, absolutely. What advice would you give someone to purchase their first dog or pup? Well, firstly, um, give some thought as to what work you actually do and what you really need in the dog. And then I'd go to somebody that does similar work and, and needs similar dogs to what you need uh, and that breeds similar dogs to what you need and have a good look, you know, look around for as many places as you can. And and um, if you've got somebody that will keep a dog like I will till it started, most people want to sell them at eight weeks and, um, you know, you just got to take whatever you can get. But certainly... Um, Look at bloodlines, look at um, people that have got, breed the dogs that you like, have a look at the parents' work, and if you can see a started pup, all well and good, but otherwise, if you can see what the parents do and what other dogs this fellow's got that's going to suit you, grab one of those. It's, a, it's got a good temperament. Mm -hmm. And what's your training setup for um, starting dogs and training them? Well, um, what I do is, uh, as I say, I show, you, I show the pups these sheep, you know, up at, you know, at, at up to 16 weeks of age, and and I, I haven't handled the pups a lot, you know, I've caught them and put them in, and, and I've left them a little bit wild so that I can see the DNA. I want to see the genetic makeup. I don't want to see the product of my handling and training. So I've made that selection, and then at 16 weeks, I stop showing them sheep for a month. And I, I teach them to sit and come and lead. And, I, and um, I've got a bit of poly pipe that I teach them to move left and right around me, like clockwise and any clockwise around me. I tap them on the ribs so they learn to move away from the poly pipe. And I do all this away from sheep because if I just put them in the sheep and then I start trying to make the pup sit or wave the poly pipe around when he's just getting introduced to sheep, these things can intimidate the pup a little bit. And I don't want my dogs to ever associate sheep work with intimidation. I want them to be respectful of me and understand what I'm telling them, but I don't want them to be intimidated. I don't want them jumping out the yards and run away and hiding under the shearing shed and things like that. So so I give these exercises away from sheep and and because there's no, and it's just the pup and myself, there's no distractions, so he learns it pretty easily and um, I don't have to be hard on the pup at all uh, and he just learns the lessons and then 
It usually takes me a month to teach him to sit that I can drop the lead on the ground and walk around in both ways and, and um, lead him with a poly pipe and get him to come when he calls. Of course, the call is I haven't dragged 50 metres of cord, so that when I call them, if I don't come, I just pick it up and give it a tug and then reel them in and give them a pat and praise when they get here. So it doesn't take them long to realise that when I call them, if they don't come, they get a tug on the neck. And if they do come, they get patted and praised. And they reckon this patting and praising is way better than a tug on the neck. So they get here pretty quick. But but that only works if there's no distractions. So it's for me, it's... it's um, I can't get a reliable call on a dog until I've got him pretty much broken in and controlled his heading instinct. So that's a long-term thing to get that. But but then I take them back on the sheep when they're after about a month of this work and I understand what the polypipe means. And now I'm going in on three really quiet sheep that just hang with me and I and I lead the pup in and turn him loose. I let him drag three metres of light cord and he and he's already keen to work. I knew that a month ago. So, and he's got good work in him. He's got he's plenty of heading instinct and, he, and he's got a bit of arc in his work. So he's, he's going to be nice and easy to get started on these sheep because of what's naturally in him. Um, so I lead him around his sheep and when he's pulling on the lead and wanting to get at him, I just turn him loose and he runs around him. And the sheep already know to hang to me. So I've just got three sheep and the pup just runs around him and I'll put a block on him with a poly pipe when it's appropriate and send him back the other way. And, and that's pretty much how I start them. And, and I'll just put him in there for a minute or two and then I'll back into a corner and I'll get between the pup and the sheep and I'll block him so he can't get into the corner. And, and when he, to begin with, he's busting to get to his sheep and I've got to block him a fair bit and I'll keep blocking him until, until I get his attention. So when he shifts his attention from the sheep to me, I'll ask him to sit and and um, some will, some won't. Some I've got to walk out and tread on the cord and, and then just bump them down so they remember the set lesson. But but um, that's the start of it. And from there, I just build on it until they'll sit quicker and quicker. When they'll sit quicker and quicker, I don't have to go to the corner. And then once I'll sit out in the middle of the yard, I can start putting sides on them. And then once I've got sitting sides in this yard, and the yard is it's not a round yard. It's, it's um, It measures 15 metres by 12 metres. Um, and I don't need the round yard because my sheep are so quiet. You know, I spend a lot of time getting my sheep quiet. And, and then once he's got sitting sides in there, then I'll take him out in a small training paddock and just have him balancing sheep to me wherever I walk and still working on the sitting sides and eventually get him to work off balance a little bit and then teach him to back a little bit and just we just gradually go through the, through the stages until he's a broken-in dog. I could tell you a lot more, but you'd, you would just you'd get pretty bored. No, you're all right. I can talk about it all day, mate. I do it every day, and I could talk about it all night as well. Good. So good eye. Yeah, Jane Humphreys asked, um, do you find there's much change in what you see from the beginning to the later stages of testing your pups? Uh, no. not I used to. I used to, but I've, I find now that I've been – selectively breeding for a fair while and I don't because I just select for what I do for what I've got here I'm finding now that I'm getting um you know whole litters that are almost that are very similar in their work and um and they don't change much that's part of my selection criteria I don't want dogs that you know they start off keen and then they fade or they change a bit 
you know, I, I, if they do that, I don't keep them, don't breed on with them. So I'm, I'm pretty selective on what I keep to breed from now. And, yep. and um, so I don't see a lot of change. But I've got to be, what I do have to do, I find is that some dogs will get bored with just the drill work. And because I've only got 50 sheep and my sheep will get pretty quiet, sometimes I've got to mark time a bit and I'll give them a spell from work sometimes to freshen them up and do other things with them. Um, so that'll happen to a degree, but I still favour the dogs that will start keen and hold their keenness right through the, the whole training and, and, and don't slacken off on it at all. Absolutely. Very similar. I've got a question here from um, Darius Cosgrove, and this one interests me because I've actually got a couple of young dogs um, doing this at the moment uh, with a bit of hot bite, and, and you mentioned it today, and I've got my own kind of opinion on it. So, uh, mate, do you think you can get a dirty hot bite out of a dog? If so, how? Oh, look, look. Um, I don't think you get it out of them completely. I think I'm a, I'm a huge believer in the power of genetics. Uh, and if a dog, a hot bite is a genetic thing, you know, it's, a herit, it's an inherited thing. So it's always going to be there. And what makes me think of this is I've seen shows on television where um, babies have been separated, identical twins have been separated at birth and they've been reunited at about 50 years of age and they've had no contact with each other and they compare notes and their lives have almost been identical. And and I went to school with a pair of identical twins and I caught up with them again or three, four years ago or a while ago now when their brother sold his farm here and they had a bit of a reunion back at the farm. And I was talking to them and when they, um, when they go shopping, they both live in Adelaide, they go shopping together so they don't buy the same clothes. If they go shopping <laughs> separately, they come home with the same clothes. So that's the power of genetics. So um, now I've sidetracked myself again. What was that question? I'm sorry. The hot white. Hot yes. So I think if it's in there, it's in there. But I think if you if you can keep your dog calm and um, uh, don't ask him to force or don't have him think that he's got to force all the time um, and have him learn a bit about patience, you can you can keep the hot bite subdued to a degree. But I don't think you can ever get it out of them. So I'm, I'm a, you know, I try to breed it out of them. But um, um, so yeah, I, I, I don't think, I don't think you can get it right out of them. But I think you need to not have it because I think every time you work your dog, you train your dog, and every time you work your stock, you're training your stock. And if you've got your stock lined up to, to somewhere or another, um, if they're lined up doing the right thing, they should be left alone in peace and quiet. They shouldn't be have force put on them if they're doing the right thing. And those hop biting dogs, if you're not watching them too closely, they're on the back biting hops, and the sheep are being punished for doing the right thing. So, so um, I think it's a good idea to get it out of them or to breed it out of them if you can. Yeah. But, but um, to train it out of them, you know, it's just a matter of keeping your dog off his sheep. If he's off his sheep, he can't bite them. Do you um do you think wrecking it a bit like? Uh, I, I myself, I find if they're hock biting, I don't give them hocks. I just keep flicking them on heads and keep comfortable flicking heads and maybe give a bit, bit of a growl or a little bit of pressure when they're on a hock, flick them back to a head, let them tap a head, and then don't give them no reprimand there so they think that's okay. And if I find myself that they kind of, in my line anyways, they kind of grow out of that hock bite. Yeah, it's all, like you said, it is there when they're younger. 
but they kind of pull their heads in if they're smart enough and learn to use bite in your head rather than than a backside. I, I think that's right, and I think, and I think you sort of said habits to a degree, like. Um, you know, if the dog learns that when the sheep are all lined up, he's just got to go steady and leave them alone, um, you know, then he's not going to be hot boiling. So, yeah, I, I think I think whatever works is correct. And, and um, um, yeah, if he's working heads and, and if sheep, like my dogs have got a licence. If, if a sheep turns around and looks at him, they've got a licence to bite him on the nose. No mucking about because if he doesn't, next thing they're chasing him out the yard. So, so um, if I look around and there's a dog sucking on the nose, um, I don't even reprimand him. But if he goes on with it, after that sheep's turned off and he goes on with it, well, then he's got to be pushed back and, and steadied. So, and that would tidy up that hock bite as well. So, yeah, I'm, yeah. I, I agree with you. I think I think that's as, probably as good as you can do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Darius, hope we helped you. Sorry? I said, there you go, Darius. I hope we helped you, mate. <laughs> um, Mark Mangold has another question. He's asked... When you mention that it takes time for a dog to settle in the brain and settle into its work, what's the time you would accept before you not give up on it but um, move it on, I guess? Oh, it depends. It depends on the dog. Like I, I, um, I, I find that most of my dogs are broken in at about 16 months and um, – uh, you know, some will be earlier, some will be later. Um, I've got a bitch here. There's Fernley Ruth. She's been pretty fiery. And I haven't used her. In fact, I didn't buy her. A friend of mine bought her and then couldn't handle her and, and gave her to me. And I've given her a pup for her. And she's strong. She's keen backer and she's strong. But but she's been, um, you know, pretty keen and it's like riding the horse. It's pulling on the bit all the time. You know, she... But now... She's probably nearly five years old now, and I've bred two litres of pups out of her because she had good work. It's just that she was on the bit and too fiery, and Darius has got one of her pups, and, and he is the makings of a real good dog. Uh, and, um, anyway, she's settled now, but it's taken a, a fair while, and I, and I would have... Um, she's well-bred, this bitch, and she's got a really good brother, uh, and... Um, uh, and her work itself is right, just as she's too far. I've put up with her, but if I had to take her to work with me, I'm not sure if I was penning up in a shearing shed or unloading trucks, she'd be good. But doing a lot of other things, she'd be too hard at going. So, so I would, if, if it was a if it was a, a sale dog that I had, well, I'd I'd find somebody that would suit, and I'd get it gone as quick as I could. Yeah. Oh, cool, and you mentioned earlier about how you get your stop or you sit on your dog. Um, and why it's important to you. But Morgan's asked, how important do you believe it is to have a sit on your dog, especially when trialling? Oh, I think it's crucial. Um, well, a sit or a stop, but I, I sit my dogs down, and when I tell them to sit, I, I don't want them just sitting, I want them sitting flat in their belly so that because it's, they're more submissive and they'll hold the sit better. And I think when you're trialling... Um, these dogs, these bloody judges, they're Indian givers. You know, they give you 100 points. And the moment you walk on the course, they're trying to rip them back off you again. So, so if I can sit my dog down at the appropriate time, he doesn't, he doesn't cause any trouble. And, and um, then I can, 
open and close a gate or whatever. And while I'm doing that, he's holding that sit in the correct position so that he's holding the sheep where they need to be, but he's not creating any trouble. So, so I think the sit is really, really crucial. And I also think it's crucial for training because um, I've seen people just get their dogs to stop. And Greg Prince is the only person that I've seen will tell his dogs to stop and they just freeze. Everybody else's dogs that I've seen, and there could be others out that don't, but those that I've seen, their dogs always crib a bit and they don't hold the stop as well as they should. Whereas if you sit them down, flatten their belly, if they're anything other than that, they're cribbing. So you can just remind them to hold that sit. And then once, once they've settled in their mind and accept that sit, because sit, sit, steady and stop all starts with an S, um, later on, if a dog's going too quickly on his sheep, I'll tell him to sit and then walk in and sit again. And after a while, when he hears that S in sit, he'll pull up ready to sit. Well, then I can change the command to steady so I can teach him what steady means. So it becomes, it becomes a really good training step as well because um, I can put a steady and then later on, if I want to stop him and leave him on his feet, I can just tell him to stop and block him up and what have you and, and that'll help him learn what a stop means as well. So, so I, the, the sit, I, I personally rate it really, really highly. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. Um, question here from Emma. What's the tail turn? Do you think that shows weakness? Well, um, not necessarily. Uh, sometimes it does. But, but I, when I went to Western Australia as a kid, I was 17, and I took this eight-month-old pup with me, and he was not weak. He was a strong dog, but he was a fiery dog. When I got there, I, my job was to check every mob every day for flies. They're in the middle of a flyaway. It was in April, I think. And I had this eight-month-old pup that, that wasn't broken in. He was sort of half broken, if that. I could sit him down behind sheep, but but he was pretty keen. And I would I would put each mob in the corner of the paddock, and I would walk around through it amongst them, and he'd hold them on the on the in the corner for me. But he was pretty fiery, and and if sheep broke a bit, he would he would be shouldering them. He'd run them and, and head them to head them, and he'd shoulder them, and he'd run past them and tail turn off them. So he he learned that tail turn through being put thrown in the deep end too soon, and 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 he wasn't a weak dog. He was a strong dog. He, I saw him like a weather to the ground one day. Weather tried to run over the top, and he just grabbed the bottle of snout and pulled him to the ground. So there was no weakness in him. But he was a tail. He, he would tail turn because I didn't know what I was doing when I had him. You know, when I was young, and and I sort of spoiled him in that respect. But um, so it can be a weakness, but it's not always a weakness. I 100% agree with what you said there, mate. I've, I've got a dog here. I put a – she's my first pup I actually trained, and um, I put a bit of pressure on her when, when I first got her and I, I was trialling her at nine months. And um, same thing, like, I find she's not the strongest dog, but she's not definitely not the weakest, but she tail turns when she gets herself caught in, out of position, but she can't cover it quick. And she goes, well, rather than go that way, I can just turn this way, pull my body up, and kind of get – the same result but yeah a lot of times it's looked at as, as a weakness but i don't believe it is at all she's just caught out of position yeah, i learned habit now exactly and, and i think it can be a man-made habit too you know i um when i'm when i'm working with my pups when i get my pups around about say seven or eight months of age and i'm working around my training paddock 
and they're just bouncing sheep to me. Um, I don't want pups with so much iron distance that they're out wide and I want them to be coming onto the sheep a little bit because I need my dogs to have some tail in force. So when they're around about eight months of age, they're usually overworking their sheep a bit. And I know a lot of people will swing a lead around to keep them off their sheep or hunt them out off their sheep and that sort of thing. But to me, I reckon you're taking too much from a young dog and, and then next thing you can start on tail turning because they're tail turning off you, not off their sheep. So I I persevere with that. And if, and if they're running, and some of my dogs will, they'll run the sheep over the top of me. So I just walk a bit of a circle so the sheep are going around me rather than over me. And, and once again, I'm waiting for that dog's mind to mature and settle before I start teaching them to keep off the sheep a little bit. And, I, and I'm using the sit to steady it and calm it rather than hunting it off at sheep, which I think is a bit too much too soon. It's just, you know, I'm on a minority. Most people do all that and get away with it, but I just don't feel comfortable doing it. I'd like to take more time to get my dogs finished off. 100%. Um, when I actually started trialling this particular dog, I just mentioned before and got in the situation as you mentioned, I knew that she was going to tail turn, so that was going to rob me points. So I just taught her a reverse. So every time I think she gets to that point, I just reverse her and flick her the other way quickly. Yes. And she kind of takes it all out of her and I don't lose my three or five points, whatever the judge feels on the day. Well, the judges are hating you, I'll bet. Yeah. <laughs> uh, if I can save, I've got to save yourself some points somewhere, right? You certainly do. No doubt about that. They just dissolve, don't they? Oh, they do, mate. They do. And, and like, as, as I said, we're going to get on the trialling here shortly, but um, I think it has changed a bit. And sometimes it's as much about saving points as it is about getting around the course these days as well. Yeah, for sure. So how long have you been trialling and what sort of trialling do you mostly do? Um, I'd be trialling for over 30 years. Um, uh, I did a, a lot for a while, yard trialling mainly. Um, I did a little bit of three-sheet trialling early on and I did enough to get the idea of it but not enough to get good at it. And my dogs didn't really suit it. You know, I had I had Kelpies and... and um, I went to a trial and, and my Faye, Faye, my wife, overheard some of the trials saying, oh, that, that young bloke with the Kelpies is here again. So, <laughs> so I, was pretty much a, I was pretty much an apprentice and my dogs didn't really suit the job, but I had a bit of fun and, and I learned a bit. But, um, but I didn't go on with it, mainly because I had to work all the time and a lot of the three sheep trials were, were um, uh, during the week, so I couldn't get to them anyway. And... Um, and I've done a couple of Kelpie trials and whenever South Australia's hosted them, um, but mainly yard trials is what I do. And, and I, as I say, I've been trying for probably over 30 years. Yeah. What, why do you try? It's probably the next question. Yeah, it's not great to that question. Yeah. What, what was that? Sorry, I missed that. Why, why do you try? Oh, because I love it. Yeah. Um, uh, What's your you takeaway? Sorry? What's your takeaway? Oh, well, you know, I go there and I try to I try to run as good a trial as I can. And, you know, it's great if you can win something. But really, for me, it's, it's meeting with, you know, talking to like-minded people and mixing with people that have got the same interest. And, and just to see my dogs work well, you know, um, plenty of times you get beaten by better runs. But if I can if I can work my dogs and and they and they um, run a smooth trial and I'm really happy with how things have gone, 
um, and I've been beaten by a few points, well, so be it. But but um, if my dogs have gone well, not disgrace themselves, and and um, um, you know I, I can watch my run back. Like Morgan will be there sometimes, and we'll video my run, and I watch that run back, and I'm happy with what I see. Well, um, I'm pretty happy with it. I just I just love watching good dogs work, you know, and and um, uh, that's it for me. You know, you're sitting around talking to people that have got the same interest, and they're watching good dogs, and you're comparing notes, and and you're seeing a dog that you know, a young dog working, you think, oh, what's that one? I might put a bitch to him one day and things like that. That's just, that's it for me, pretty much. Yeah. Uh, yeah, question here from Rick. He's asked, what attributes would you need to see in a dog for you to think that it could do a three sheep and yard or utility trials equally well, or at least both to a high level? I ask because it seems dogs specialise so much these days. Well, I think, I think, um, a three sheep trial, your dog's got to cast wide. You want him to get around behind his sheep without upsetting the sheep, um, and then he's got to he's got to come in fairly tactfully on his sheep and cover and hold as he comes in. So he brings his sheep down steadily. and And I'm not really qualified to talk about three sheep trials, but this is through my observations. When I was doing these few three sheep trials that I did, um, Lou Noble was trialing then, and and Lou was a brilliant handler, I thought. Um, if he wasn't, he certainly had me fooled. I, I'd watch him time and time again. He'd cast his dog around his sheep and stop it down the other end of the footy oval, and and he'd he'd bring that he'd bring that dog in a little bit, stop it, and he'd move it left and right so the sheep would see the dog out of both eyes, and then he'd bring in a little bit more, stop it, move it left and right again, and he'd the whole draw. The cast lift and draw, he'd be bringing those sheep down the ground. He'd try and keep them in a walk. And by the time he got to the casting peg and bringing around the peg, those sheep were quiet and not frightened of the dog. So the dog could get close to them without upsetting them too much. And then he'd go bang, 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 bang through all the obstacles and the job was done and hardly lost a point. So so three sheep trials, you've, you've got to have um, your dog's got to cast well and arc and head well staying on the edge of the flight zone, not busting into the flight zone. So you've got to have that. And and that works well also in a yard trial, provided the dog will walk in well enough to, to have the sheep, you know, come off him and come into the yard. So I've seen some three sheep trial dogs, I saw a dog that was working a three sheep trial and he worked a, a yard trial, he couldn't get him in, he could hold him at the gate, couldn't get him in, he spent the whole 12 minutes holding him against the gate, couldn't get him in the yard. So. So for the dog to do everything, he's got to have a good cast. He's got to arc and head his sheep well both sides, walking on his sheep. And then once he's in the yards, he's got to back and be happy to push through and work in those tight spaces. And and um, I think um, White's fellow, when I judged him at, at Brinkley Station back in 2014, he was all those things, you know, and that's the sort of thing the dog you've got to have. And sometimes... Those dogs might appear to be a little bit underdone um, for real hard work, but they they still get the job done. I know Gary always said that White's fellow was a very good station dog, and when I was judging him, I um, in his cast lift and draw, he looked like he might have nearly been too calm, but part of the course, as he brought him up from the cast lift and draw and through the circle and up into the yards, I was in another yard and he had to walk his sheep past me, 
and and I was particularly interested in him. And as he walked past, I watched him, and his eyes, he was on fire. Like, he looked calm and easy, but he wasn't. He was he was fair income on fire and on the job. And so when he got in the yards, he'd back. Um, I don't think he barked. I can't remember now. But So if you've got a dog that will cast, cover and hold and arc a bit so that he'll stay outside the flight zone until he's asked to come in and will will back and push through a tight yard, that's the sort of dog that will do your three sheep trialling and your utility trialling and your yard trialling, I think. Yeah. Absolutely. And just on saying that, like you mentioned about with Les Noble, being able to back, like have his dog out in those flight zones and just pop on each side to the sheep. You think um, that that's where the Kelpie, well, where the Collie excels in that, just that little bit of bit ability to keep off and not having not having to ride a Kelpie? Well, yes, but um, but I think I think there's more and more Kelpies being bred to do that now. Uh, like I, a big part of my selection criteria is I want the dogs to stand uh, training and take orders, take commands and respond to them without losing their keenness. Like I reckon um, there's dogs that can, that Kelpies in particular, that that when you start trying to take command, take control of them and, and command what they do, they'll get the sulks up and they, they say, ah, oh, stuff you, if you don't like the way I'm doing it, doing it yourself sort of stuff. Give and I think there's more Kelpies being bred that will stand that training and that command and, and they'll do as they're told and maintain keenness and their alertness to work and their keenness to work. And and then and then if you don't want to control them, you can turn them loose and not control them. You know, yeah. I, I hear some people say, oh, I don't want that control on my dog. I want my dog to think for themselves. Well, I want my dogs thinking, but I want my dogs thinking for the team. So, so um, and I'm the team leader because I know what's going to happen. So if my dog's not sure what's going on, I want to be able to give them commands and have them move over here and move over there or do whatever. But then if I've got to drive forward and open and close gates or, or, or set gates up as we're going, I can just drive off and leave my dogs there and they'll still bring them along. So I don't have to be controlling them all the time, but I want them what I can if I have to. And I think there's more and more Kelpies being bred along those lines, I think. I think that'd be pretty accurate. Yeah. Um, yeah, I was going to say, Rick's asked another question here. It's what's the best tip you can give someone about to start trialling? Um, well, go to dog training schools, you know, that's that's run by somebody that is a good trialer. For starters, that's, that's, a, that's a good place to start because uh, and... and um, work out what dog you need, but the type of dog you need, because I think um, if, you're, if you're trying to trial with a dog that doesn't suit what you're trying to do, you're up against it and you're fighting your dog all the time and your dog doesn't mean to be doing the wrong thing or, or have the wrong effect on his sheep. He just can't help it because he's a product of his DNA. So try to get hold of a dog that's going to do the job for you without too much trouble and without having to correct the dog too much or change the dog too much. And then understand the judging criteria, but but don't worry about your scores. I, when I first started trying, I've had I had two minor scores back in the days where like they just you lose a hundred points and they say no points allocated. Now, when I was started, Neil McDonald he took about 
but 115, 130 off me a couple of times. You know? so, so I come back with a minus 15 or a minus 30, you know. And so, so don't worry about the score. What you're trying to do, what you're trying to do is to have a nice, smooth run through the course. And if you can have a smoother run than anybody else, you'll win the trial. So, so that's the thing is don't put pressure on yourself. Don't try and blind yourself with science. All you're doing is putting a handful of sheep through a set of yards. So um, just enjoy it and, and um, just try to work smoothly. Great advice, mate. Uh, well, my next question has actually been stolen by Morgan anyways, and that's um, <laughs> do you have a favourite trial to participate in um, or one that you'd like to? Um, my favourite trial um, was always Millicent. I, I won Millicent Open three years in a row. And... and um, no wonder you like that. Yeah, that's right. But I did. I just liked the course. I, and I don't know why, but I just did. Um, um, so, yeah, that would, that's probably my... And I don't get to Millicent all the time now. We've, it clashes with the uh, Eurader up in the Adelaide Hills, and I, and I support that one because I've got, a, I've got a daughter and family. Well, Morgan's mother lives at Mount Barker, so they're close there and we often go up there and camp the night and then go to, the, go to that trial. But, but Millicent was my favourite trial, I think. And Lucendale, I've got a few, few favourites. Lucendale, Karunda, they've all, been, they've all been pretty good. That's the way. Um, so throughout your travels, have you seen um, something that handlers struggle with and where do you believe they can improve? Uh, I think probably reading the play, um, yep. I, and really, really, um, well, when you look at the encourage, um, when when you got a lot of learner learner handlers there, um, some of them probably haven't got their dogs broken in quite well enough yet, and they and they lack a little bit of knowledge with regard to training, and that could be improved. But then it's but then it's reading the play and understanding. Um, when I was doing, having a lot to do with horses and when I was kids just, well, learning about horses, which you never stop doing, but I used to go to show jumping schools in the, in the May holidays. Um, the South Australian Show Jumping Club used to run these schools at Strathalbyn and, and we'd do dressage in the morning and, and jumping in the afternoon. And one instructor, a fellow called John Vaughan, was a man of policeman and I did two schools under him. And one of his favourite sayings was, when you're riding a show jumping course, you've got to think what you're doing and think what you're about to do. So in other words, when you ride show jumpers, you walk the course first and you know you, you'll stride out how, many, how much distance between each jump so you, and you know how long your horse's non-jumping stride is. So you know how many strides between each jump. And then you, you know you walk the course and you plan how you're going to jump it. So whether you've got to shorten your horse's stride up to take four short strides between these two jumps or you lengthen them out and take three long strides between the jumps. You've got to work all that out. So, so you've got to think about what you're doing now and also as you're going over this jump, you've got to think where you're going to land, where you're going to turn your horse and where you're going to go next. So that was really good advice that I learned from this horse instructor and I put that into play when I'm working the trial. Like You've got to think about what you're doing now but you also got to think about where you're going to position your sheep for the next object, you know, for the next um, obstacle or next section of the course. So that's all pretty important. And I think that a lot of young handlers haven't learned that yet. And, and it's a bit of a struggle, you know, when they all of a sudden 
they've got to go to the next um, the next uh, section and the sheep are all in the wrong spot and you've got to try and get them out and they haven't got quite enough control with dog to get them to do the right thing and so that's what they struggle with and it's just experience and practice and and the opportunity to train their dog well you know um i know when i wasn't doing much outside work with my dogs and i just had was training them on 50 sheep here 50 quiet sheep and then i'd go to a trial well i struggled you know because because my dogs weren't experienced but now that i'm doing this more work that i can do more work and i can test them more it's much easier so there's people now that are you know, got a handful of dogs and they might only have 10 acres and they've got these same quiet sheep well they're going to find it harder to get there but it's not their fault and but it's just the thing is experience and opportunity to learn the whole ropes i think and read the play and while you're talking about darius has asked what's the hardest trial you've ever competed in I can't I can't really think it'd be well it would have been I reckon I had a dog a dog called Oscar he and an Oscar I bred and he was by this Glen Avon Spiro and Oscar was a, a good natural paddock dog like his father he's a bit stronger than his father and he'd back but he had no real hit in him he was just a paddock dog that was that was strong enough to work in the yards and we're at Lucendale Richard Puddicombe was judging and I had to fill the drenching race and of course Puds was a pretty practical bloke and he liked strong dogs and I'm not sure if it was the finals or, or just the first round of the open I just can't remember but we had to have the drenching race pretty full you know so we had to pack it pretty well and this dog of mine he had no top knot he had no bark but he'd just make position and he'd come back through his sheep and he was strong enough to do that well we had about I'm not sure 10 or 15 runs to try and pack this drenching race and we finally got that sheep's leg over the line and got the gate closed but i don't know how many points i lost but that was probably the toughest the toughest bit of the trying that i can remember beautiful and, and what advice would you give to someone that wanted to um have a go and have a career in the livestock industry i think i think um firstly try to get with an employer that's going to look after you and train you so you know there are some employers that are just happy to use people up and and they'll just use them up and then just chuck them out yeah. not paying very much and have them you know some places have a high turnover rate don't go there if you can help it um go to somebody that's that's um generally interested in your welfare as well as theirs and some of them believes that if if they have good staff and look after good staff, they'll benefit from that as well. Um, and learn as much as you can from as many people as you can. Be prepared to learn from anybody, anytime. You know, I I, um, I can remember years ago I was working on a place um, where they had a dairy farm and also horse adjustment. And my brother was working there on the dairy and doing the farm work, and I was a resident horse breaker. And and a girl was probably well she might have been 18 years old perhaps if that and she's just a pony club rider she was nothing special as a rider but nothing nothing wrong either like a nice kid and everything and here's me on the on the professional horse breaker and she told me that um an fm snaffle bit will give a horse a dull mouth and <laughs> and she knew that because the good horseman had told her that 
And I thought about it for a while, and and because um, she didn't know why, but she just knew it would. So so I thought about it for a while, and I, if you know what an FM snaffle bit is, you'll understand that it's a snaffle bit with sidebars that fit up in these keepers. Well, these keepers keep that bit very still. You obviously ride um, horses, do you? I do. I grew up riding. Yeah. So so this bit, this these keepers hold this bit very still in the horse's mouth. So so. Um, a horse with a dull mouth, that bit's very, very still. So the mouth may get duller if the bloke hasn't got really good hands. So you take that bit out of the keepers and have it hang down. So the centre of the mouthpiece hangs down. It'll move around the horse more, in the horse's mouth more, and that'll help liven its mouth up. So she told me that. So I thought about that. And I use that knowledge for the rest of my horse-breaking career. If I had a horse with a dull mouth, I'd let the bit hang down and move around more to liven it up. And if I had a horse with a lively mouth would get his tongue over the bit and mucking about and playing with a bit too much, I'd put it up so it's quiet and still. And that'll help that horse settle his mouth down. So I learned that from a from a girl that was nowhere near as qualified as I was, but I learned from her. So whenever you go, whoever you are, learn from whoever you can, because it can help your heat. Definitely I like that. Great advice. Mate, who would you like to see us sit down and have a chat with on Dog Talk? Uh, I reckon David Lee um, from Lee's Working Dogs. Yeah. And, and um, maybe Rick Jones from Broken Hill. I think, I think he'd have some interesting stories to tell. Oh, we'll stay tuned next week, mate. Oh, he's on, is he? <laughs> oh, very good. Good day. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. And... Um, yeah, Lee Mickens will be another one too. Lee Mickens here in South Australia. He's he's done yep. very well. He he was second to Gary by a point mm -hmm. at Milrose. So Lee would also be another one to be worth talking to. Beautiful. There you go. Cool. I, I reached out to uh, oh, she can't read my writing. Apparently, my English isn't fantastic. Uh, I've reached out to Dave, so hopefully we'll be able to get them on when uh, things slow down for those guys a little bit. Yeah, good. So we've come down to um, that time of the night, mate. Was there a question that stood out for you and uh, they'll win a bag of Enduro Plus or Enduro and you can pick any of the, of the bags? Um, high energy food I, for working dogs with Real King Roommate. I, I thought Emma's question about um, preserving the bloodlines of past dogs, yeah. I thought was a good question and, and um, one, pretty too. important one. Did you remember that or did you write that down? I, I wrote Emma here. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so how did I I've been watching your show long enough to know that you've got to think a little bit. <laughs> oh, there's a stack of questions tonight, and there were a few questions there we didn't get to. I apologise for that. Um, but we um, really appreciate everyone putting their effort in and being a bit conscious of the time as well. We look like never nearly been on here for two hours, and um, earlier you said you fall asleep just after dinner normally. So, no worries. I must talk too much, do I? No, 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 it's been fantastic, I'm mate. I'm sure there's more we could talk uh, about, really. 100%. But... Uh, Emma, if you could um, just shoot us a message um, with your details, uh, phone number, email address, we'll get a bag of Enduro coming your way. Uh, also, Wayne, thank you very much for your time tonight. There's going to be a bag of Enduro coming your way as well. My pleasure. Thank you very much. And I'd, I'd right. donate my bag of Enduro, but I'm really keen to try it, actually. So yeah, definitely. <laughs> I've got to snaffle it up. Thank you very much. <laughs> Have a go. One last question. Yep. Would you rather fight one duck the size of a horse or 20 horses the size of ducks? This is actually really interesting with his experience in horses. Yeah. Well, I, I'll tell you what, um, I, I'm, not, I'm more of a lover than a fighter and, and um, I'm a bit of a, 
I'm a bit of a lazy bloke. So I, I thought that I would rather um, fight 20 horses the size of a duck because um, I'm not much of a cricketer, but I reckon with the help of a cricket bat, I could win that fight fairly quickly and then I could get back to doing what I really wanted to do. <laughs> there you go. We haven't had that one No, that's a new and, story. Everybody. And would that be a sweep shot or would it be straight down the ground? Um, well, we'd be using the arrow at the back. If you saw me play cricket, you would know that whatever I was lucky to hit with, that's what I'd be using. I, I, I don't make sweet shots or straight down the ground. I just wave a bat around. Might be easier just to throw a stump at him, mate. Yeah, that, that too. Spear him with the stumps, yeah. <laughs> Wayne, thank you very much for your time tonight, mate. Much appreciated. Definitely, yeah. Thank you. My to pleasure. Thanks for having me. That. Thank you. Thanks to all our guests, um, um, our viewers tonight. Um, be sure to catch this one on our podcast. And please remember, we learn every day, and the day we stop learning will be a sad one for all. Thank you. Cheers. Thank you. Catch you. Good night.